Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to try. Oh, we got no. There we That's a little bit better. Can we get a little, little more mic back there, anybody? Anybody working the mic back there? A little bit more mic. Okay, the new coffee system is working. Without further ado, I give you Chaplain Tim Blackman. Round of applause. All right. We get one guest per year. And, and Chaplain Blackman, September 4th, he emailed me and said, all right, I have 33 notes on this. And now the book stack for this has grown about this high. We're really excited to look forward to what you have for us. Thank you. Thank you for the, uh, the warm welcome. Let not conscience make you linger. H.F. Kohlbrüche's comma. Uh, grace is like a treasure hidden in a field. Uh, we stumble onto grace. Uh, we discover it. We are discovered by it more than it is the final result of a self-initiated inquiry. Uh, as you well know from the last few months of catechesis, this is a discovery that Luther made when he read Romans chapter 1, 16 to 17 about the gospel and about the justification of the unrighteous. And Luther said that it was as if paradise opened for him. Uh, for Augustine, a similar moment happened when a voice prompted him to take up and read, and he read the book of Colossians, and his life was transformed. Uh, today, we will find out how Dutch minister Hermann Friedrich Kohlbrugge, and I'm, I don't even, I'm not even going to ask you to say the name, uh, because, well, for, just for your neighbor's sake. Uh, he, was, he was born on, on August 15, 1803, and he discovered the grace of God in a life-changing way when he read Romans chapter 7, verse 14. Now, now before, I, before we talk about that, chances are uh, you are here at catechesis and you have been coming these last few months and you've perhaps even read uh, Paul Zoll's Grace in Practice because you too have bumped into grace one way or another. And you have found grace to be amazing. And you've been surprised by it, perhaps even overwhelmed by it. As I said, the title for my two talks, so today and next week, will be Let's Not Conscious Conscience Make You Linger, H.F. Kohlbrugge's Comet. Now, I don't expect anyone here to know anything about H.F. Kohlbrugge. Uh, he's neither Anglican nor American. Uh, he's no longer alive, and now really outside of a very small group, and I mean tiny group of very passionate friends, he's not very well known. So I would rate the odds that you have stumbled across his writings uh, slim to none. In fact, only a few of Kohlbrugge's letters and sermons and commentaries have even been translated into English. They are either in Dutch or in German. Now, if, if somehow you will be able to see a glimpse of the brilliance that I have seen, and if somehow my inabilities will not obscure Kohlbrugge's genius, the only right and good thing for you folks at All Souls to do is to learn and read to speak Dutch. 
if, honestly, if, if reading Kolbrugge is the only reason you're going to learn Dutch, it will be well worth your while. Now, two quick endorsements. Carl uh, Barth believed that Kolbrugge deserved honorable mention in the same sentence as Martin Luther and John Calvin. In fact, Kolbrugge believed that, or Bart believed that Kolbrugge exceeded the reformers in their understanding and exploration of sola fide by faith alone. He said that only Kolbrugge had plumbed the depths of sola fide and thought through its proper and logical conclusions. The second endorsement comes from Abraham Kuyper, who was the former Dutch prime minister. He was pastor, theologian, and founder of the Free University of Amsterdam. And he would visit Kolbrugge for pastoral counsel when he was confused about how to lead the country of the Netherlands. And he also trusted Kolbrugge because of his depth of understanding of the human heart. Now this morning, rather than doing a deep dive into the historical and ecclesiastical and cultural context, I want to share just a few of Kolbrugge's discoveries of grace. And for this, let's ask God's blessing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are the God of all comfort and the God of salvation. And we thank you so much for this moment of learning this moment where you, by the power of your spirit, use your people and your word and above all, the supernatural good news of grace. And you move us, you, you wow us, you overwhelm us. And we pray this morning that in a new way we would discover how good and astonishing and completely undeserved, your grace for sinners truly is. In Jesus' name, amen. So in a way, this feels a little bit like introducing a very, very dear friend of mine to somebody who's never met him and who somehow maybe will never meet him again. So uh, here, here I, have, I have 10, here's my top 10 list of, after reading 20 of his books and sermons and prayers and whatnot, there are 10 quick discoveries that I want to give you discoveries of the gospel of grace that Kolbrugge made. And if you want to uh, jot them down, you can. Uh, maybe if I'm in a good mood next week, I'll provide you a handout of this week, because that way you'll come back. Uh, first of all, Kolbrugge discovered that the law is spiritual. Kolbrugge discovered the law is spiritual. And the first part of this discovery for Kolbrugge was actually devastating because he discovered the brutal reality of the law. The law is holy. The law is righteous. The law is good. The law demands perfection, perfect obedience, perfect love, perfect passion, complete obedience to God. Kolbrugge said, the whole man is to be according to the mind of God, the heart with its dispositions, inclinations, and desires as the heart of God. And together with the body and its members compose a perfect man in the eye of God, a man whose entire walk and conversation is according to godliness. 
The law requires a pure man, a, a pure heart, a holy life, and it tolerates not a single thought which is contrary to itself. And here you actually see that Kolbrugge's insight, even though he was a reformed believer from the Netherlands, is very similar to the definition of the law and the requirements of the law that we might find in the Westminster Catechism. You may know that it requires our personal, perfect, and perpetual obedience. Only doers of the law and perfect doers of the law at that, perpetual and personal doers of the law will be justified, he discovered. And if the law is as spiritual as Kohlbrüche believed it to be, the law tracks down fake Christians. The law silences pretend Christians who are puffed up with vain pride and pharisaic self-confidence. For Kohlbrüche, it was clear. Once you discover grace, and this is a bit of an, it's not a very elegant analogy, but he used it, it's not mine. He says, once you discover grace, it is like finding a new spouse after you've been divorced. The, the law is your ex-wife. You don't remarry your ex-wife. He says, I have bid farewell to the law, said goodbye to all my knowledge of good and evil, of rebirth, of being pious, of knowing God, of all what is flesh, my only salvation is in God. This was Kohlbrook's first discovery. The law is spiritual. Following from this is his second discovery, and it's this. Kohlbrüche discovered that flesh is flesh. On December 7, 1833, while preparing a sermon, actually for a Wednesday night meeting, he had a spiritual breakthrough. And he actually calls it the repentance of his repentance or the conversion of his conversion. And it happened when he read Romans chapter 7, verse 14, which reads, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, comma, sold under sin. And I translate here what he said. He says, I, I do not know whether anything else in all my life has ever moved me as much as the noticing of the comma. I am carnal, comma, sold under sin. Now, here, there's some great irony here. In the Greek, there is actually no comma. Uh, <laughs> but Kolbrüche realized what Paul meant. In, in reading Romans 7 verse 14, Kolbrüche came face to face with the limitations and liabilities of the flesh. We are not flesh because, or we are not only flesh insofar as we are sold under sin, we are flesh because we are human beings. And because we are human beings, everything we do is contaminated by sin. We are flesh. We can do exactly nothing to contribute to our salvation. And so for, for him, this moment, for when he realized there was this comma, I am sold under sin, I am flesh, comma, for him, paradise opened and it changed his entire life. Because for him, this emphasized the radical nature of human sinfulness 
and consequent necessity of the complete substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. Now, what is flesh? Flesh, Kohlbrüche said, is the corrupt state of sinful man, subject to the devil and to death. And in letters and in sermons and in lectures, he would wax eloquent about this. He would say, the flesh pretends to be something. The flesh wants glory. The flesh wants to seem powerful. The flesh is the confident self. Flesh is insistent in trying hard. And even though the flesh is weak and the flesh is small, and it is in the end nothing, it is confident in its own powers. And the flesh is insistent on trying hard to please God. And it refuses to let all futile projects of self-salvation go. He says, the flesh perpetually dreams of a mystical arrangement of self-improvement with a high regard for personal feelings of piety and little regard for God's sovereign grace. And here is the problem with the flesh. The flesh cannot and will not, it simply refuses to see that the flesh is weak. We read it this morning, all flesh is like grass. And so he saw that the flesh is our superhuman defense against God. And it is my stubborn insistence to keep my pace with God. In the economy of salvation, the flesh wants to be on God's payroll as his indentured servant. Or, not to push the analogy too far, the flesh wants to go Dutch with God. <laughs> Uh, the flesh is a stubborn refusal to believe God's grace. It is reluctant to accept grace. The flesh is a bulwark, a rampart, a reinforcement against God. But Kolbuche discovered, I am flesh, I am carnal, I am a mere mortal. And in order to discover grace as grace, I need to admit that when left to my own devices, I cannot save myself. I would not even want to save myself. To be flesh is to be a sinner. To be flesh is to be needy. And salvation is the free deed of divine pity, divine compassion, and it accords occurs solely to the honor and glory of God. He discovered that the law is spiritual and that flesh is flesh. And this one, this may seem puzzling to you. Thirdly, Kolbrüche discovered that he needed to repent of his conversion. He needed to repent of his conversion. Here's what I mean. Uh, his discovery is even more startling when you actually realize that he is what we would today call a Christian or at least a churchgoer. He was a baptized member of the church. But he re came to the realization that his conversion to Christianity was not actually a conversion to the gospel. He had been converted to religion, to morality, to trying hard, to being good and to having confidence and feeling good about his own moral track record and the fervency of his own piety. And then 
in the discovery of the comma, to his great surprise, he discovers the, this, this supernatural grace and finds out that we contribute nothing to our salvation except the sin that makes it necessary. Once and for all, for Kolbucha, the discovery signals the end to what he calls spiritual ladder climbing. And he gives actually this image of we are constantly trying in our own flesh to climb up this ladder of pious self-improvement. And Jesus, the Lord, meets us as he is on his way down. The ladder down, which Christ descends into the world, this is, as we will see next week, the faith of the biblical saints. Here's what he says. And I love this, I love this image. There, there are those who day by day live under the illusion that they can contribute their kernels of sand to climb the mountain of holiness. But from one day to the next, the storm of sin blows all the sand kernels away. And there you are in the corner crying and you've got to start all over again to try even harder. He says our self-righteousness is rooted so deep. He says the old monk refuses to die. We must be cut off from any false security that rests on something other than the word of Christ. There is no room for bottom-up subjectivity that rests on something other than Christ. All a believer can do is to rest in the finished work of Jesus all offers of religious performance, purification systems, and mechanisms are the philosophy of the devil who misleads all God's children. He was, he was actually very suspicious of what we would today call spiritual formation or discipleship programs as somehow a lengthy human-initiated growth process taking place in the innermost parts of man and woman. It fell short for Kolbrecha because it does not do justice to the flesh and to the fullness of Jesus' work. So we find this deep suspicion of the pious flesh. The fourth discovery is the shortest one and perhaps the most important one to remember, and it's this. Kolbrecht has simply discovered that God justifies sinners. This is the discovery of Romans 7.14. God justifies sinners. He does not justify saints. He does not justify people who try hard. He does not justify people who are pious. He does not justify people who try to be doctrinally correct in every way. God justifies sinners. Also, Kolbrecha discovered grace as the only antidote for a guilty conscience. Grace is the only antidote for a guilty conscience. And I'm not sure if you've noticed this. I imagine you have. These last few weeks and months, you've been studying grace. And you're probably wondering why you're not making more progress or why your Christian life isn't perhaps more impressive. And that at the end of even a brilliant catechism 
season, you may be not all that different or that much more spiritual, that spiritually powerful or spiritually impressive. And constantly, your conscience and mine is accusing you. You should do better. You should be better. You should be more spiritual. You should sin less. You should, you should just stop it. And Kohlbuch had discovered that the only antidote for this guilty conscience is a personal discovery of grace. Uh, I, I saw this most beautifully in a hymn that we sang recently at Wheaton. It's a, it's a modern hymn. It's, it's entitled, Come Ye Sinners. It's written by Joseph Hart and Matthew Smith. And listen to the lyrics of the fourth stanza. Let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he required is to feel your need of him. This he gives you, this he gives you, tis the spirit's rising beam. So let not conscience make you linger. Do not be reticent in your Christian journey. Do not think of that moment when you once and for all will be fit for God's service or you will become as super spiritual as you think you ought to become. Let not conscience make you linger. No, all the fitness that is required is simply that you recognize your need for supernatural grace. I, I, have a, I think the, one of the reasons why I, I read about almost nothing else is because I have the hardest time believing this. Uh, a great comfort for Kohlbrecher came when he read the Heidelberg Catechism, which is one of the most beloved catechisms of my Dutch Reformed tradition. And uh, reportedly, even his dying words were, read the Heidelberger to stick with the simple Heidelberger. But let me show you in question and answer 60 of our beloved catechism uh, how the matter of the guilty conscience is dealt with. Here is the question. How are you righteous before God? And remember, this is written for children originally. How are you righteous before God? And here comes the answer. Only by true faith in Jesus Christ even though my conscience accuses me of having grievously sinned against all God's commandments, of never having kept any of them, and of still being inclined toward all evil, nevertheless, without any merit of my own, out of sheer grace, God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ, listen to this, as if I had never sinned nor been a sinner, and as if I had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me. All I need to do is accept this gift with a believing heart. Do, do Anglicans say amen? We do. Did you hear that? Did you hear that? Even though my, my conscience is, is constantly accusing me of never having sinned and of even now having every inclination towards hating God and my neighbor, 
Through simple faith in Jesus Christ, God credits to me the perfect obedience to Jesus, and it is his perfect track record that is credited to your account and to mine. Oh, let not conscience make you linger. I think this is six, but I'm not very good with math. Cobra's uh, sixth discovery is that we are saved by neither pious feelings nor by dogmatic correctness. And this is, this is historically probably the most important thing you should know. At the time in the Netherlands in the mid-18th century or 19th century, there were, there were basically two groups. One was known for its attempt at being super spiritual and super pious. And the other one was well known for its passionate commitment to intellectual dogmatism. And Kolblicha believed that there was a third way right through the middle. And on the one hand, he was very concerned with the enlightenment-inspired self-confidence in reason and intellectual ability. And this is what got him in trouble. As a student, as a divinity student, he had registered his complaint publicly, and he'd actually brought a charge against an ordained minister for being intellectually far too dogmatic. And as a result of this, Kolbrich's candidacy to the ministry was denied. He, all he had done was written a letter against Pastor Uckerman, and this got him in trouble. But he, he struggled with this extremely dogmatic approach to Christianity because it did not actually touch real lives and real hearts. Hearts are allowed to harbor sin when they believe and their confidence is in their doctrinal accuracy. And he says that he believed, or he believed, that being super orthodox was a brilliant cover, the perfect hiding place, safely ensconced away from God's redeeming grace. And in the same way, he was against this spiritual self-confidence of the pious. Well, this discovery of God's grace cost him dearly. He was denied access to ordination, uh, his membership in the Dutch Reformed Church was sabotaged. He was despised by conservatives and liberals alike. All pulpits in the Netherlands were closed to him. And for some time, and this seems incredibly petty to us right now, he was actually prevented from marrying his girlfriend for doctrinal and philosophical reasons. Uh, he was, so he was ostracized everywhere. And, and what, one of the things that I love about this is here you see the difference the gospel of grace makes in practice when these gospel convictions actually prove to be costly. All these setbacks that he faced, uh, I mean, for, for 16 years after graduating from seminary, he was denied the opportunity to preach. And he, he, he actually believed he was made for the big time. He had an unbelievable gift. And every time he did preach somewhere, People responded uh, with a sense of blessing and gospel comfort. But for 16 years, he was denied uh, access to any pulpit in the Netherlands. Here's another way that I could put it. Here's the seventh discovery. Kolbuch discovers that grace is your only comfort when your life is a total train wreck. So from 1834 to 1848, he was denied ordination. He was passed over a professorship at the Leiden University. Initially, he was denied candidacy in the Lutheran Church. Then he tried in the Reformed Church. And it's primarily for, for petty political reasons. He had uh, problems with his eyesight. 
for a long time he didn't have a job and and as I said he was he felt he was made for the big time and so now he he has 16 years to discover the art of doing nothing and somehow he spent his time writing letters and he had this uncanny ability to use just the right word and to to bring the comfort of the gospel deep into the recesses of the human heart and as one commentator says, there he poured the oil of the Holy Spirit on the gaping wounds of the soul, blowing gently on smoldering embers glowing under the ashes. This is what he spent with his spare time. Uh, he, he was so distraught that he was not given a pulpit. At one point he said, if I don't have a pulpit to preach in, I might as well just die. And so he ended up going into exile, essentially, and serving a small, out-of-the-way out church in Elbersfeld, Germany. But somehow, even though his life was a mess, his dad died uh, at a, in, a, in a tragic way, lost his business, didn't have a lot of money, spent 16 years doing nothing, and then he says this, I am content with the Lord's direction." that he will do all things wise and good because his kingdom advances through resistance. I don't know what, in what way your life may have been or is right now a train wreck, that it has not lived up to your expectations, but it was Kolbrich's deep assurance that God works under opposites, that his kingdom works in hidden ways, and that even though it seems that he is not at work, he is actually very much at work. What follows from this is his eighth discovery. Kolbrucha discovers that grace is the only solution to dealing with obnoxious people. Uh, as, as I mentioned earlier, he, he desperately wanted to marry Katharina Luisa Engelbert, but he was denied primarily for doctrinal reasons. And then it was funny, it was Katharina's grandmother who had read Kolbrucha's dissertation on Psalm 45. And she said to him, uh, and it was, a, it was a Christocentric interpretation of Psalm 45. And she said, if you treat the bride of Christ this way, you get to marry my granddaughter. <laughs> And that was finally the reason. But all along, he, he dealt with people who were obstinate and difficult, and they were difficult to love. And you begin to see that the discovery of Romans 7.14, the comma, the discovery that the law is spiritual, that flesh is flesh, and that grace is grace, and that God is God, and that your spiritual formation will probably amount to a lot less than you think. Because of that, he actually discovered what grace in practice looked like. And he was patient with people that were difficult to love. Grace gave him power to deal with obnoxious people. And the ninth one, Kolbuch had discovered that grace enabled him to keep going when his heart was breaking. After having been married for four years to the woman of his dream, she died after a very brief illness, leaving behind uh, two young boys, ages one and three. Uh, this death caused unspeakable grief to him and it took a terrible toll on his physical health. This is initially why he moved from the Netherlands to Germany to try to recuperate. And somehow he kept going. In fact, 
His life's motto became this, and he, he had a Latin phrase, and I'll translate it for you. It's perfer et abdura, dolor hic tibi prodirit olim, which, as you know, means uh, <laughs> be, be patient and tough. Someday this pain will be useful to you. So, so how does this man who has just lost his wife, he has not had a pulpit for 16 years, he is in Podunk, he is in the Pucklebrush in Germany. Every possible, every, every, like every reasonable part of his ministry and vocation has not gone according to his best laid plans. And what he comes up with by the grace of God is be patient and tough. Someday this pain will be useful to you. Hang in there, stay tough, and suffer hardship. And he could do this because he realized that he was a stranger in the world. He was a pilgrim. And it was, high, it was his high and holy privilege along the way simply to point people to the one who can save and to him alone. And then finally this, and then I think we may have a few moments for some dialogue. Uh, Kolbruch had discovered that grace is the only sustainable source of a sunny and happy disposition. A lot of this came, I think, for him because he realized that his own attempts at being super spiritual were what he called his Babylonian captivity. And it was grace that led him out of exile. It says, if you don't release your grip on self-formation, self-purification, and self-improvement, it only leads to your perdition, and you will remain in your Babylonian captivity. And as such, the only real and sustainable source of joy for the Christian is to rest in grace. No works, no attempts to appeal with piety, religion, or spirituality. Nothing except confident, confidence in the gospel. And for those people, God grants a happy disposition, a joy. He says, and I close with this, it is our natural inclination to resist God and to do our own thing. But God wants a servant who with happy disposition and surrender, without any reservation, obeys him and trusts him. Let not conscience make you linger. H.F. Kolbruchus, comma. Imagine that. Yes. K-O-H-L-B-R-U-G-G-E, Kolbrugge. And I, let's come up with an American way of saying that. Kolbrugge, uh, Dr. K. And, uh, and I, I will have some of these notes, including the lyrics of the hymn and the catechism in a handout for you next week. But I didn't want you glued to the paper because it's also terribly fascinating. Yes? Yeah. Uh, and 
Yeah. Yes, this was the number one criticism levied against Kolbrüche. Uh, there was a famous uh, Jewish poet, uh, Isaac da Costa, who wrote a letter and accused him of being antinomian. And he said, you're basically telling people that they don't have to do anything, they don't have to try hard. And in fact, they accused him of ignoring the third part of the Heidelberg Catechism. So the first part is about sin, the second part is about salvation, and the third part is about gratitude, how now we shall live. And he said that uh, Kohlbrüche basically um, ignored that part. I don't think he did. Uh, and it is clear from his life that grace had a, a transforming impact on him. And when you, look at, when you look at his life, I would say that faith became a way of life for him. But it was less out of this desire, oh, I've got to try to be super hard. But there was still a way that he was completely immersed. Because if you look at what they actually did, so he went to church on Sunday morning, Sunday afternoon, Sunday evening. Then he would, the rest of the week, he would either pray or write letters or visit the sick or do something good. Then Wednesday night, they had another preaching service. Then he had uh, correspondence with people all over the world. They, they came together in what we would call small groups. So, there's all the, so it's not like they're not doing anything, but it is a full immersion approach, and it, it has a lot more to do with being carried and being found and uh, being ministered to than it is you saying, oh, I'm going I'm to do this. I'm going to try my best. I'm going to you know, grin and bear it and do this. It's, it's not about that. It comes as a gift that is discovered more so than a task to be accomplished. Yeah. But the, the, I mean, you, you, the reason why I didn't bring it up because I knew the question would come and every time Kolbrucha opened his mouth, the accusations of his antinomianism would be voiced. Yes. Yes. Right. Because your partner in that is Jesus. Yes, yes. Uh, I find it fascinating that he was counting so much yeah. in his lifetime yeah. on that one thing. Yes, yeah. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, the, the attitude often was, uh, I owe, I owe, off to work for God I go, something like that. And, and instead, he, what he had, and this is interesting, I, I think Paul Zahl was, is influenced heavily by Lutheran theologian uh, Gerhard Ferdi. You may have come across him in his readings too. And Ferdi is actually accused of the same antinomianism as Kohlbrüch. And it's interesting, it's probably their link to Luther that causes this. But, but Ferdi talks about that sanctification is what you do when you realize you don't have to do anything. And I think this is, this is how I understand the 16 years of Kolbrüche in exile, where he had no job. 
And what he did was he, he breathed gospel com comfort to any visitor who would come through his house, anyone who needed a letter written, anyone who needed pastoral counsel, whether you were the prime minister of the Netherlands or were you just a peasant in Elders Elbersfeld. It made no difference. But it's what he did when he realized he didn't need to do anything. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I keep thinking of the Jesus parable of the man who finds the treasure in the field. He stumbles across it. I think that's the way we stumble across the kingdom and the gospel of grace. And then he and then he does something. And what he does is insane. And what he does is single minded and unbalanced. He sells absolutely everything because of love for one thing, because he values one thing. I think when we discover grace, uh, it leads to an unbalanced, one-sided pursuit of something that we consider pre precious. And that means immersing your heart and mind in gospel comfort. Well, where do you find it? You find it in the scriptures. You find it together when you gather with the saints. So yes, but by no means, don't stop reading. Don't stop praying. Don't stop meeting together. Uh, but it is a gift that you discover. And you get, you get to do that. Yeah. Yeah, George. I think what you said is that this might be your own problem with the Yes. Where do you I think what what um, what Bart means with that is not that he is opposed to Lutheran and Calvin, but that he thought its life changing implications through more carefully and more pastorally. And so this comes through mainly in his letters, where people write to him with garden variety challenges of daily life in the small parish in Elbersfeld and all throughout the Netherlands. And it's the way that he applies it. And, uh, and this is maybe also his deep understanding of the motivations of the human heart and flesh that he actually pushes it further pastorally. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Oh, there. Yes. That I might win the glory, yes. the glory of the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's that tension between the flesh and the spirit, because they're at enmity one with another. Yes. So when the question was, what shall I do after you know, receiving the awesome and amazing grace of God, it, there is a work of the Holy Spirit. And that too is gift. Yes. Yes. It's all yes. God. 
Amen. And, yes. Yes. And, and you get at the kind of the, there is this unconscious piece about it where God is doing this. It's miraculous. It's surprising. And it's not the result of anxious, angsty navel gazing. It's self-forgetful. Don't worry so much about you. Don't think so much about yourself. Don't worry so much about how you're improving or getting better or what you are or not doing. You are immersed in an ocean of grace, and that's the gift. I saw one more. I saw several more hands, but I... Okay. Matt's, I think, wanted to say it was time to quit. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So these were the, these were exactly the pious people that he was critical of. There is a there is a stream of hyper Calvinism in the Netherlands that's so concerned that God has passed them by, that they have not received the grace of God because the flesh is flesh and they are but a worm and God is going to squash them. The chances that he would actually come with his sovereign electing grace are slim to none. So they shouldn't even, and this often includes elders in the church, they shouldn't even have communion. And it is, this doctrine is the spawn of Satan, just to say it mildly. Um, and this is one of the streams that was becoming... Uh, current and it, or it, it wasn't it wasn't as active at the time it actually shows up a little bit later but he saw the early beginnings of that and he says if because what you do then is you base your sense of happiness and joy in Jesus Christ on how you feel and how you think you're doing instead of objectively on the finished work of Jesus Christ and this is one of the reasons why he couldn't find a home. Because they said, well, oh, he's not, taking, he's not taking sin too seriously. The other said, he's not taking doctrine seriously enough. And he tried to find that middle way, which is what rendered him homeless spiritually and doctrinally. We'll continue this next week. So if you have any questions, bring them back. Tim, thank you. Absolutely. My pleasure.